1: The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively
0: formed penetrators. Suicide bombs.
1: And then that's about the time that the third IED went off.
0: And that's when another grenade
1: comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates.
0: There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240. And the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in.
1: One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight.
0: Welcome back to the Spear uh, MWRs podcast on the combat experience. My guest on this episode is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Ritgers. Dave, thanks so much for taking some time so we could so we could chat and you could you could share a story. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have a really interesting military background, I think, um, and it's one of the things that I like to do when we start an episode is, is sort of highlight that background. Uh, can you tell listeners uh, what your job is now?
1: So. Currently, I'm the special victim prosecutor here at the United States Military Academy. So, uh, I've been—I'm in year four of doing that job. I did it for two years previously at Fort Benning, Georgia, and now two years here. Uh, and it's a subset of the Army's prosecutors, and uh, handling primarily sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, and crimes against children prosecutions in courts martial.
0: Wow. Um, the story you're going to tell is, is, uh, is from 2003, uh, when you were a special forces officer with a third group, third special forces group, how do you kind of make that transition? Maybe you can just talk a little bit about how you got in, first of all, what, you know, brought you into special forces and then how you ultimately, uh, ended up with a job as a, as a lawyer.
1: So I always wanted to be a green beret and, uh, I first commissioned out of ROTC. In 1997, I spent a couple of years in Korea as an infantry officer, and then I went to uh, the selection in the queue course. And uh, uh, actually, the first day of my SF selection was 9/11. Uh, uh-huh. We yeah, we actually didn't didn't know that it had happened uh, until probably a week or ten days later because you really? do everything. Yeah, you do everything in um, media isolation. Like when you walk into Chow Hall, they turn off the CNN TV in the corner, and you just don't know what's going on in the outside world.
0: And so, and so the cadre don't, I mean, don't give anything away. There's, I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing to me that you, you could even be kept kind of isolated like that.
1: Yeah. So they, uh, they, they asked the class, does anybody have, uh, relatives that, you know, work in Manhattan, you know, work in a twin towers. And I think there was a handful of folks who raised their hand and they, they talked to those people and then they actually brought us in, uh, set us in the auditorium and they had, like a PowerPoint set of pictures and they briefed us and said, you know, this, this happened, uh, you know, the country is, is going to war. So good luck in selection.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, so you become a special forces officer, uh, and, um, uh, when did you, I guess, when did you report to third group?
1: So I actually reported to third group in 2002 in, uh, July of 2002 and, we were deployed. And so I reported to, uh, my, uh, my unit, second battalion, third special forces group while we were in Kandahar. And so my first tour in 2002, I was, uh, a a fire support officer, which at the time was not artillery. It was, it was coordinating aircraft. So I spent my first tour, uh, you know, in on the radio and using, um, Merck chat to talk to aircraft carriers and, uh, the, uh, uh the combined air center uh to resource aircraft for missions
0: you know you said you found out about 911 kind of while you were while you were there how much did that change i mean you said you always wanted to be a green beret um being a green beret sort of pre-911 versus post-911 is a little bit different at least in terms of where you expect to spend a lot of your time um How much did that, you know, how aware of that were you that, hey, I'm probably going to be spending a lot of time over the next, you know, however long I, I stay in, in, in Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, it definitely impacted our, uh, our deployment schedule and our operational tempo. Uh, so we went every summer, we went, um, my time in special forces in the summer of 2002, 2003, 2004, we were Afghan summer warriors and we just went every summer and, uh, rotated uh with seventh group and then um the National Guard uh, uh special forces groups twentieth uh, group uh you know bounced back and forth with them but we were there every other tour was you know in the same same country and actually uh my team went four rotations to the same fire base uh in Oregone uh which was very effective. It's not something that was replicated, you know, very widely um uh, uh, and it, it only happened because my team sergeant and I made it happen, uh, because we were actually passing through that area. And based on the past relationships that the team had with uh, you know local leaders and intelligence sources from the 2002 tour, we lobbied to get the team put back at the same Firebase. And it was, it was very effective.
0: Okay. Uh, and so that's the area that uh, I believe you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about the, the place where the story that you are going to share, uh, took place. But I also want to ask you before we get to that, um, at what point did you decide, Hey, I, I, I want to go to law school and, and maybe, you know, be an army lawyer.
1: So I had two things I always wanted to do. I was wanted to be a green beret and I thought maybe I wanted to go to law school. Uh, and so after my time, uh, as an ODA commander, uh, I got out in 2005 and, uh, I uh, went to law school and uh, I ended up working in the civilian sector for several years. And I was also uh, a, an army uh, reserve judge advocate. And then they mobilized my reserve unit to Fort Bragg, which is where I spent all of my special forces time. And I hmm. knew a bunch of people there uh, and, uh, and I, I put a packet in to go back full time as a judge advocate. And, and here we are, you know, many years later. So
0: 2003, this is your second deployment, uh, second deployment to Afghanistan. But is this the first one in E?
1: This is the first one in Organy and the first one where I'm, uh, where I'm the
0: ODA commander. And did you? So, what does the sort of op temple uh, look like? You know, many listeners will be familiar with patch charts and all the backwards planning for, um, for pre-deployment stuff. How different is that for uh, an SF unit?
1: It's not really. So we are our tempo was we would deploy uh, in April or May, stay there for about six, seven months, and then come home around Thanksgiving or so, take leave through the holidays, and then starting in January, we would do a bunch of ranges. We would go out to the desert, we would train in Nevada mostly, and uh, and then we would just get ready for another deployment. And that's you know rinse and repeat. That's what we did.
0: Okay, so. April, May, 2003, you get in country and you go to Organi. Um, You're the ODA commander right now. Um, what was sort of, you know, this is still only less than a year and a half since, um, you know, we kind of had people on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, what was your sense of what your ODA's mission was?
1: So our mission changed a lot. Uh, okay. We were a special reconnaissance team, which meant that you know we would go and conduct reconnaissance with big telephoto lenses, and you know take pictures uh, of an objective that was supposed to get raided and transmit it you know back to uh, the direct action teams that were going to conduct the raid. So we, we did do some special reconnaissance up front, and then we did some uh, long range reconnaissance, which was uh, driving in uh, completely unarmored Humvees. The up armored Humvees didn't exist at that point and, you know, in the numbers that they, you know, that they were needed. So we had, we didn't even have windshields, uh, in our Humvees. They were just basically overgrown dune buggies. Uh, and so we did a lot of that. And then we ended up moving to Oregon uh, later on in the tour. Uh, we had a, another mission. Uh, there were a lot of ambushes at this particular base, uh, to, uh close to Oregon And so they, the idea was that we were going to, uh, take a small UAV and and our company had some. So we took these two small UAVs and they wanted us to fly the UAVs out in advance of units from the 82nd airborne to detect ambush guys lying in, in ambush lines. Uh, and so we drove across the country. We were at a different base. We drove across the country to, to cart these, these UAVs down there. Uh, the UAVs were broken within a week and a half. And uh, but, we passed through this area where we have these great relationships, and so we lobbied our bosses in the battalion uh, to let us stay down in Oregon e, uh, because of the good relationships and because of the 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 uh, you know the impact that we felt that we could have, and we did have that impact. There were increasing attacks, uh, rocket attacks on the base, and um, and they uh, and so you know gathering intelligence, we had pretty good idea um of what was going on with the rocket attacks uh that the guys who were conducting the rocket attacks actually drove down from the mountains and into the bazaar, the little town in oregonie right outside our base and so they would come in to do their resupply and refit basically right outside our front door right. uh and they were able to do that because you know the the, the folks at the base didn't have good intelligence um and so uh and so we ended up going on a mission, uh, towards the border and we went, uh, uh, into effectively it was ambush alley. Uh, the how,
0: and area. how, can you kind of describe this, like the battle space, how far from the border is Oregonese situated?
1: Oregonese about 40 kilometers from the border with Pakistan. Uh, okay. but it wasn't really Pakistan. It was North Waziristan. And so sure. that's, uh, you know, something that a lot of people don't appreciate that, it wasn't until after 9-11 that the Pakistanis actually really exercised any control over uh, the uh, federally autonomous tribal areas, which north is uh, Waziristan and south Waziristan are, are hotbeds, you know, for uh, Taliban support. And so mm-hmm. we were really essentially 40 kilometers from enemy territory. Uh, and the train is mountainous? Yes, it's mountainous. And so Organy is in a big valley. Um, it's in a... Uh, uh it's a it had been a Russian base because of its utility for uh, landing helicopters there. Uh it had been a Taliban base and then it was an American base. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so actually, funny story. <laughs> uh so the uh the Russians laid mines around the base so that they couldn't get assaulted by the Mujahideen. And the locals had land disputes because they uh they wanted to have the land uh, that, that, that was right next to the base because their theory was that, uh, uh, was that if we had land next to the base, when this all gets privatized and it becomes a private airfield or whatever, we'll own it. If our tribe has land next to it. And so the, uh, the folks to the, there was two sub-tribes and these are all, uh, Karoti Pashtun and so the, the Belichis to the north and the Karakel of the south. And so the Karakel of the south had a whole bunch of houses right up against the, the southern border of the base. And they felt they had a good claim. And the Belishi wanted to have better claim. So uh, there was this instance where they built this house that no one was going to live in in the middle of the minefield. Uh, and, and when I say the minefield, it was largely depleted. But, you know, like once or twice a year, some shepherd would walk his, you know, goats through there or whatever. And, and boom, and a goat or a guy would get blown up. But so they built this house right next to the base to claim the land uh and it wasn't even it was like a, a rock igloo it was a, a pile of, it was like the Flintstones house hmm. and uh and then uh, the caracal from the south came up and they they were they had a they were trying to push the the Belishi uh, out out of the area there and uh, and so we went out to go referee it and unfortunately my security forces the local higher militia guys that I had were split between the Belishi and the Caracal. and so my head interpreter and the front gate guard squad leader were on opposite sides of this subtribal divide uh and so we're running out to go break it up and my other interpreter who was not from either of those tribes um uh, Ayub um he uh, uh he was leading me out there and I said I said Ayub we're running into a minefield how do I not step up on a mine and he said, "Oh, we'll step on the plants because the little scrub brush plants. Step on the plants because if you step on the plants, there's roots under it, so there's no mine. Well, that's a good tip because I was stepping to where I could see clear ground because I could see clear ground, but that doesn't mean anything with a mine. Sure. And so we had to go referee this uh, uh, this you know fist fight uh, that you know kind of blew up later in the day. We chased them off, uh, and uh, and then they they came back and they were jousting in the field." with station wagons and AK-47s, and they were driving these station wagons past each other, and guys on the in- inside of the lane were leaning out the windows with AK-47s, and they were jousting with AK-47s in the minefield. Uh, and, uh yeah.
0: <laughs> it's also sort of a very localized and and kind of tactical level manifestation of essentially the political strategic problem that has has kind of laid over uh, the US presence in Afghanistan for almost two decades now um trying to manage all of these sort of you know unique identities within the political entity that we call Afghanistan so ambush alley that you mentioned is that essentially are you talking about one stretch of road or are you talking about essentially this entire area stretching all the way to the border
1: uh it was a particular area that was that was uh the site of many ambushes and so we would had to go um, about 15 kilometers uh north to get into the valley entrance and then and then the valley and the, the Picate Valley went north to south probably 10 12 kilometers. Um, and then you would, you would mount this big ridge, and you would go down in Manikandau, which uh, means Apple Ridge, um, uh, and, um, or Apple Orchard. So uh, you would go down this big hill, and Ambush Alley was useful for two reasons. The first uh, is that when you're driving, uh, there's a steep drop-off. And so on the left side of my vehicle, there's a cliff that goes up above me. And then I'm on a road, and on the right side of the vehicle, it just drops off, and it drops down, you know, whatever a hundred, couple hundred feet down into the bottom of the valley. And so you're you're sitting ducks. There's no way to maneuver. And then on the far side, looking out the right of my vehicle, you know, there was a there was another ridge that had a good firing positions that could shoot at us. They are probably about three hundred uh, yards meters away. Uh, but even more importantly, it is that it w- had an easy uh, exfiltration route to get off the back of that, the ambush site, uh, position and get into Pakistan or more properly North Waziristan in about 20 minutes. And, and so one of the things that we discovered in the course of our deployments was that, that while air power was very useful in the the early part of the war, uh, the problem with not having it with the enemy, uh, you know, not driving fleets of technicals and pickup trucks towards the, you know, the fifth group guys that went in in the very beginning and then just dropping bombs on them that created an over-reliance on air power. And so later mm-hmm. on in the war, as we were in, you know, an increasing, you know, counterinsurgency, increasing intensity and counterinsurgency, air power is great if it's on station. Uh, but an insurgent is going to pick their ambush site differently than the American's will. They're not trying to try to kill everybody in the kill zone, they're trying to strike and get away. And so that route to get away was was even more important than the, you know, the, how useful the ambush position itself was.
0: Um, okay. So, so and the, the, the particular story that you're going to share, it sounds like you probably have a number from this deployment uh, and, and probably more from others, but the particular story you're going to tell is of an ambush in this site, is that correct?
1: Yes. So yeah. how long so, had you so been we, in
0: the AO until or before then? Were you familiar with this? You know, how dangerous this particular area was?
1: Uh we had a pretty good idea. We actually said we're gonna go get shot at when we went on this mission.
0: Oh wow. So yeah.
1: So so we didn't know exactly how good that ambush position was and it, and and then in the subsequent tour in two thousand four, we actually moved uh we occupied a base uh, four kilometers from North Waziristan that was uh, in a place called Lawara that was a really unfriendly neighborhood. Uh, and we were actually on the other side of Ambush alley. and so all of our supply trucks had to go through there. Mm. Uh, and so that you know that created a whole different set of problems of its own.
0: yeah, I, uh, I bet so tell me the story of the ambush
1: yeah, so so my my first uh, uh, you know my first gunfight, Direct fire gunfight uh, was this ambush, uh, and so there's, uh, you know, there's um, nine Americans in uh, three trucks, and uh, uh, and so we're we're driving with our, um, you know, a platoon or so of of local higher Afghan uh, militia guys that we had with us. And uh, we're, we're driving. I'm in the middle vehicle. Uh, my team sergeant is in the rear. My assistant team sergeant is in the lead. We're going down ambush alley, down this uh, down this hill. And you know, once again, I have a cliff on the left. I'm on a road and a cliff drop off on the right. Uh, RPG goes right past the lead vehicle, uh, and then they exit the kill zone. And then some uh, pretty accurate machine gun fire uh, hit the unarmored Afghan truck right in front of, uh, my vehicle. And so I was in the center vehicle and then that Afghan, uh, that truck, uh, with some Afghan fighters, uh, in it, uh, ended up lurching to the left and the front tire rolled into a ditch and kind of up against, uh, the, 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 you know, the cliff on the left-hand side of the vehicle. And so the vehicle in front of us got stuck. And so we were stuck and we were stuck in the kill zone, uh, and, um, and, you know, we were there for probably about 45 minutes. The first 30 were, were really dangerous. And then the last 15 or so, less so. Um, but so, uh, so I had a pintle mounted, uh, uh, medium machine gun and M240, uh, sticking out the side of my vehicle. I didn't have doors. I didn't have a windshield. There was no, you know, as I said, there were no up armored Humvees to not enough to go around
0: at that point. So what do you do? The two, So the two American vehicles that are stuck now behind here, obviously have to stop. Um, do you just get out, try to make the best use of of the this vehicle, which doesn't have great cover, you know, and start returning fire across this valley?
1: Yeah. So I, I uh, drained my machine gun uh, up at the ambush line uh, and uh, got out of the vehicle, um, got my helmet on and uh, got behind the engine block and, you know, just traded shots with the enemy for a while. And then I looked up and the, uh, the Afghan, uh, vehicle in front of us, um, just as the ambush was, you know, was really going, uh, one of the soldiers that was sitting in the back of the truck, um, he, uh, he stood up and I actually heard the, a a machine gun around hit him in the back of his torso. I could hear kind of like a wet smack when, you know, it hit him and I heard him cry and then he, you know, he kind of fell over. Uh, and then that vehicle just got saturated with machine gun fire. Um, and so we had that guy wounded, um, and, uh, uh, his name was, uh, was Ibrahim. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, so Ibrahim, uh, got shot in the back, um, and we were stuck in the kill zone. Uh, so the guys on my truck, I had George was my driver, uh, and then, uh, the, the guy gu- uh, manning the, uh, the medium or the uh, machine grenade launcher, the, the, um, Mark 19 in the turret was, uh, at the time was technical Sergeant Kevin Whalen. And he, so he was, uh, in a, uh, an air force guy who was, you know, t- uh, attached to us. And he was there to, uh, to provide, uh, close air support guidance. Um, and then on the back of the truck, there was a pintle mounted machine gun, uh, and my senior weapons Sergeant, uh, Ben Jones, Sergeant first class Ben Jones at the time, uh, was back there. And so uh, so I got out and I dismounted. I saw that Ibrahim had been shot in front of us. Um, uh, Kevin was running the, the Mark 19 uh, for a little bit, but the Mark 19 was designed for the Brownwater Navy in Vietnam. It doesn't handle sand very well, and so they jam pretty easily. Uh, ben was on the back. He fired his uh, 240 for a bit uh, at the, the ambush line, uh, and um, and then he actually was hit Uh, a uh, a Soviet medium machine gun, a PKM around uh, actually hit Ben and it passed through his calf. Uh, It lodged in his rucksack. We actually found the bullet later when we were on a reconnaissance mission. Uh, But so, so Ben got shot in the leg. Uh, I was, you know, shooting from behind the vehicle. And then Ben said, coming over and rolled off the back of the vehicle and took a position of cover. Uh, And so, um, so we had, you know, wounded guys. We didn't have, uh, my radio hand mics were all on the far side of the vehicle on the, the commander side. Uh, and we needed to, you know, we needed to get comms, uh, to, to get up on, to get some air support. We needed to get communication with our higher headquarters. So um, you,
0: you had described earlier sort of the TTPs of an enemy ambushing force in, in this site. How much of that were you aware of at the time? Did you know that they had a really convenient exfil route? So, so I guess my question is, was your objective just to send, so much fire back at them that they would disengage or were you just trying to kind of keep the fight even until you could get radio comms and get air support in?
1: We were just trying to get to get uh, to, we're trying to suppress them to get some air support in because the intervening terrain, there's no way we could get up and and assault that position because you'd have to go you know down a cliff basically, and then climb a a hill. Uh, You know, there was several hundred yards of, of, bad terrain in between that wasn't really, you know, realistic to, to trying, uh, you know, to, to kind of counter assault because of the distance involved. Um, and so, uh, you know, so we needed to get, uh, our casualties, uh, looked at and, you know, and at the time we did not really have a good appreciation for the importance of the exfil route as to, you know, ambush site selection. Um, so, uh, so I'm, so I'm, shooting at the enemy ben is shooting at the enemy um and uh um and i needed to get the radio handsets which were on the far side of the vehicle and the vehicle is getting hit with bullets they're you know pinging in around the, the vehicle um and so uh so one of my afghan uh, militia guy comes to me and he he looks at me and he he has a he's got his ak-47 held up he's got an empty magazine and he's saying something to me it was beyond the scope of my posture to understand what you was saying but it's pretty clear he was out of ammunition um and so i needed to get i needed to do some leader tasks so i gave him my m4 i put it on uh semi and i said hey i gotta go get some hand mics shoot at the enemy and uh and so you know sort of like um you know we need to get some covering fire to like for me to go crawl around in the vehicle yeah and it's kind of like uh you know saving private ryan on the beach where he's like he's like hey everybody get ready get a magazine in covering fire and we did that and you know fired back. and I crawled across and got the hand mics and then we ended up getting comms and getting the air support moving.
0: Um, I should have asked this before, but what time of day is this?
1: uh, This is midday.
0: This is probably like
1: two in the afternoon.
0: So could you see the, the, you know, the point of origin? Could you see where the fire was coming from? It was pretty tough to
1: pick out exactly where the, you know, on the ridgeline that it was coming from. You know, I, it was, it was really just kind of, you know, we were just trying to, to pinpoint them now as will become important in the story later. Um, uh, Ben Jones, the, my weapons sergeant, uh, he had a good, good view. He, he had picked it out better than I did, um, exactly where it was. And he actually could see, uh, one of the guys shooting at him who had a really distinctive kind of streak in his beard, uh, like a white streak in his beard. And he could, I mean, he could see the guy's face through the, the, the four power, um, ACOG, uh, sight yeah. that he was using. Wow. Uh, uh, So, um, but yeah, so, so I got the hand mics, uh, and I, you know, we were calling for support. Um, and then this like wave of machine gun fire just sweeps over the vehicle. Um, and, uh, and then I heard, uh, Kevin, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, looking directly at him when it happened, but he made this like kind of sickly sound. He was like, Oh, it's like, Hey, I I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think I'm okay. I think I've been hit. Um, And, uh, and the machine gun fire from the, you know, the Taliban position was, was really effective. Um, uh, Kevin got hit uh, in several places. Um, He had a a bullet that that actually hit the bottom of his body armor and it missed the trauma plate uh, and, but hit the Kevlar and then slowed down and stopped in his, like his belt buckle. Wow. Uh, so he got really lucky there. He had one that 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 like hit the side of his hip and blew his Leatherman that was on his hip, like blew it apart on the inside of the vehicle, and then he um and then uh, bullets hit the Mark 19 that he was shooting back at them. One of them was a golden BB and went into um uh went into the internals of the Mark 19 uh, grenade launcher uh and and just basically destroyed the internals like where where the 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 grenades fed into it was Mm -hmm. they had to just like melt it down it was worthless after that uh and then he had bullet fragments that blew all over the machine the the grenade launcher and lodged in his arm um and so he said hey i'm not feeling so good and i had this horrible image that i was gonna turn around and he was you know in pieces but uh he wasn't he was kind of slouched down after all the machine gun kind of you know fire just sort of washed through the truck and hit him uh, so, uh, we didn't have doors on the Humvee, so we just pulled them out the side, um, you know, pull them out the side of the, the, Humvee, uh, and then, you know, George tried to get an IV started on Kevin, uh, and we did get, you know, in contact with some air support. And so two, uh, Harriers, uh, actually came in and, and ended up doing uh, a gun run on the, um, on the, uh, the enemy position. And then, so, uh, Kevin, um, was the first, uh, uh, tactical air control, uh, you know, airmen to control fire while wounded in action in a really long time. Wow. Uh, so, uh, so and he was, you know, successful. He did it, you know, did really well. Put the put the fire where it needed to be, um, and um, and so, uh, so at that point, you know, we're, we're you know we're trying to get out of the kill zone, and we had this truck that was in front of us that was that was stuck, um, and so uh, um, I did, at this point I still didn't have my M4. I was you know gave a magazine or two to the to the Afghan. Uh, Fire who was you know was with us, And so I had my pistol out and I fired a few rounds as we're running out into the kill zone because Ben and I had to go get the truck out, and so um, so I brought a pistol to a machine gun fight, uh, hmm. and uh, it was it was it was really it was just for my morale. It, I don't think that had any effect. But so we went to go get the um, to go get the truck out, and uh, and so Ben um, and I should note so Ben was Ben was forty six years old at the, the point that this happened. Uh, and, uh, um, and he'd been shot through the, the calf, uh, by a medium machine gun around. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, Ben was at the time, the, uh, the movie, uh, um, old school had come out and there was a really old pledge to the fraternity blue. <laughs> and so we, we called Ben blue cause he was the oldest guy on the team. Um, <laughs> but, um, but then, Ben uh, uh, you know, got uh up to the truck with me. Um I I grabbed uh the in uh the driver, Gulbadine, uh got in back into the truck uh and was trying to, you know, to to rock it a little bit, uh, but it wasn't coming out the front wheel, front left wheel wasn't coming out of the ditch by itself. So I grabbed the inside of the door uh frame, the open window, and I was trying to push it out. Uh, and then Ben actually got in front of the truck and he put his back against the grill and then his feet against the cliff that was, you know, right next to the road. And, uh, and he's, you know, squatting out like leg, pressing a truck, uh, with With a,
0: a, with a bullet hole in his calf. Yeah.
1: With a bullet hole in his leg. And so, uh, yeah. Um, so he, he did it. Uh, we, we, uh, we got the truck out. Uh, you know, we, um, we ended up getting out of the kill zone. Uh, Ibrahim, the guy that got shot, um, uh the sf medics and for those who don't know the special forces uh uh, medic course is is phenomenal uh and you know in terms of a a trauma you know gunshot wound there's just about nobody better to have um and so um you know our medic sean took this large gauge uh catheter and 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 you know stuck it up basically in the base of uh uh, ibrahim's uh, torso and you know Whole bunch of blood just like sluiced out from the sucking chest wound that was, you know, compressing his torso and, and impeding his ability to breathe. Uh, so say, I mean, saved his life on the spot. And so, you know, we evacuated casualties, um, and, uh, uh, you know, had a, um, you know, rough day at the
0: office. And, and how many was it that you've mentioned a few casualties, uh, at this stage, air support has come on station. The ambushing force has, it sounds like disengaged So your, your attention now turns to the CASAVAC mission. How many, how many casualties were there?
1: So after the conclusion of that, that mission, um, you know, not only did, uh, did, did Kevin, uh, and Ben get wounded, but my junior weapons sergeant also had, um, uh, Preston, he had some, uh, bullet fragments in his nose, um, uh, and so he also got a Purple Heart. So in addition to the Purple Hearts, uh, you know, for their uh, valorous action, both Ben and Kevin ended up getting Silver Stars um, for uh, you know for for just for absolutely you know doing their job under fire in some pretty pretty tough conditions. Um, and uh, um, you know, Kevin is now retired. Uh, Ben's retired, and he's actually now uh, he's a he teaches uh, uh, Robin Sage. Uh, which is the, uh, the final exam for the Q yeah. course. So he's actually out still mentoring, uh, you know, new green berets going into the field.
0: Good, good. So that sort of wraps up the story of the ambush itself, but, um, there's, there's sort of an addendum to, uh, to the story. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So we, um, yeah, we ended up uh, wrapping up that operation and, uh, and then we, and then both Ben and Kevin were returned to duty. They came back, um and uh you know we had more um attacks on the base with the rockets uh and um and so then we had um an increasing stream of intelligence on the guys that were firing the rockets at us um and that they were you know likely the same guys that were on the ambush line that shot at us on you know 19 July uh, 2003 it's when that took place um and uh and so the intelligence reports said that they would come down every few weeks out of the mountains they would buy a bunch of food, watermelons, and, and other you know kind of their field rations, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and then they would buy the the supplies to uh, to set off the rockets. Uh, some were on timer, some were not. So they would buy motorcycle batteries, uh, and then they would buy um, fluorescent light bulbs, and they would strip out the wiring in those to connect them to the battery to to the uh, to the batteries, so they can you can the actually the 107 107-millimeter uh, Soviet rocket is a marvel of engineering. Um, you can stick them in a, a, a big rack uh, uh, on, on the back of a truck, and you can volley fire them, and you can level a village. Or you can take one of the tubes off of the rack, and you can uh, put it on a, a tripod uh, with what's called a circular level, and it just tells you what distance it's going to shoot at based on how you angle the tube. Uh, and so you can basically precision fire with the one rocket, or you can sit them, you know, on a rock and you can, uh, connect them to a a wristwatch and a motorcycle battery and you can, they can just go off on a timer. Uh Uh, so, you know, really useful weapon, uh, to an insurgent. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, they were buying the electrical supplies, the wiring and the batteries and the watches and the, everything that they were doing, um, they, you know, they would come into the village and get those. Uh, and so the intelligence was so good and so specific that we had you know, an, on a, uh, an on-order mission that we were just going to launch, and we were going to go get them if they were in the village. And so uh, our intelligence you know, contacts said, hey, these guys are coming in. They're here. They're in the bazaar right now. And so we went out the back door of the base and uh, got on the road going north out of Oregon uh, or get, the town was kind of the north of the base, and so we went around the backside, uh, and then um, and then the uh, the truck this truck comes out of the the, the bazaar, and uh, um, and the contact fingers it and says, "Hey, that's the guys." So we stop the truck, we get everybody out of the truck, and there's uh, a couple of older guys, and then some young kids um, that I, you know I think they were using these kids as basically cover, right? So it just looks like a you know like these young kids were not part of the, the actual ambush line Mm -hmm. uh, or the insurgent cell. Um, And so uh, we get them out and, um, and uh, we, you know, we're looking at these guys and, uh, and Ben uh, uh, looks at one of them and this is guy who's got this distinctive, you know, streak in his beard. Um, And he, and he says to the interpreter, he says, Hey, you tell this guy that I remember looking at him uh, shooting at him on the ambush line on the 19th of July. Was, and this is like two weeks later. Uh, and the interpreter translates it to the guy. Uh, the The guy says something back to the interpreter. And the interpreter shakes his head. He says, oh, no. And, and I said, well, what do you say? And uh, and he said, well, the guy says he remembers shooting back at Ben, too. Oh, and wow. so it's, yeah, just an on-site admission, like, yep, yep, I am that guy. Uh, and so, you know, we capture these guys, uh, and we take them back to the base, and we, you know, pack them up, and then all of the wiring and batteries and everything. And we ship them off to Bagram to go get detained. Uh, And, uh, and so as luck would have it, and as bureaucracies have a tendency to mix things up, uh, none of the, these guys showed up to the detention center and all of their, the evidence, the wiring and everything got lost. uh, And we got this note sent to us and they said, Hey, who are these two? uh, Who are these people that you sent to us? And you know, we're gonna let him go. You got 72 hours to justify why we should keep them. And so I went back through all of my intelligence reporting and I, you know, I picked out, um, uh, I picked out, you know, on this date, this context says this, they're coming into the bazaar, they're buying they're buying their, you know, their wiring and their supplies or batteries, said so they're gonna be back on a certain day. Probably we were ready to go. This guy makes this on-site admission uh, that he was in an ambush against us. Uh, and, and so they actually, we actually did a photo lineup where, you know, Ben, they emailed out a photo lineup with some other folks who weren't the guys and, you know, Ben Pixie's these he's like, yeah, this is the guy, these are the guys. And so they kept, uh, the two older guys who, you know, we really felt were, were part of it. Uh, you know, they ended up getting detained, uh, because of that. Um, and so I guess the, the lesson that I would give to, to, you know, junior leaders is that, uh, uh, you know. It's it's important to document uh, what you do when you're you know you're taking someone into custody. Uh, when I was trained in ROTC in the 90s, you know they talked about the five S's for enemy prisoners of war, and you would uh, search, silence, segregate, safeguard, and speed to the rear. And then when we went forward in you know 2001 and later, they added the five S's and the T, the T for tag, to document getting someone into custody and I, I would submit to, you know, any young leader who's getting ready to go out there, you know, just because you're the the platoon leader, uh, you know, doesn't mean that you just get to do the missions that the, you know, that the, the documenting of that, the, the, the paperwork, uh, in those missions can be, uh, you know, can be the critical factor in making the mission succeed. Uh, so, you know, doing, doing the humdrum paperwork, uh, is, is really important, and so you know what I ended up putting together was kind of a, a foreshadow of going into you know the practice of law. That what yeah. I ended up putting together was kind of like an affidavit for an arrest warrant that you know some law enforcement officer would fill out. And you know, the battlefield uh, continued to get legally complex. You know, by the the late days in Iraq, uh, you know when the Iraqis had gotten their sovereignty, uh, we were you know doing missions based on Iraqi judges signing off on warrants. It wasn't just follow the intel and conduct a raid. There was a legal process to go through. Uh, and, you know, that, so that that legal complexity and that requirement to, you know, show your work and and document things, that's something that that is not going to go away and is going to continue to be a factor on the battlefield going forward.
0: I, what I think is r- really important about that is y- you are here uh, in 2003 with what is, you know, arguably, you know, one of the cool guy jobs in the army, you're an ODA commander, special forces officer. um, But there is still this administrative sort of burden, this, this workload that doesn't, you know, that takes place behind the scenes that doesn't, uh, isn't always a part of the, you know, the recruiting materials, let's say. Um, But it's important in whatever job anybody has. It doesn't matter if you're a special forces officer, you're a, you're an infantry officer, combat arms, non-combat arms, uh, logistics officer, that that's always, uh, you know, we are at the end of the day, a huge bureaucracy. And like you said, a bureaucratic slip up might mean that, Hey, these bad guys are trying to kill Americans. If we want to keep them off the battlefield, we have to do, we got to put in the work and that doesn't just mean, you know, retiring returning fire during the ambush. It means when you detain somebody, like you said, the, the, the T added onto the five S is you got to tag everything. So um, well, Dave, I really appreciate you making some time. Um, I will also say, you know, kind of a peek for listeners, a peek behind the editorial and production curtain. Uh, we talked before this and you have a, several stories that you could have shared. I think that all would have been really interesting. So, um, you know, if you if you have time and you're, and you're interested, we'd, we'd love to have you back on at some point. Yeah, that'd be great.